Thank you, Courtney. Where's Courtney? Raise your hand. There she is, right there. She's the star. It's good to be with you. I'm Dave Mitchell, and uh, welcome, Calvary family. Good to be with you as you continue to receive the offering. I want to let you know we're beginning a brand new series. I'm excited for this series because I love these difficult books that are in the Bible. The Bible is the foundational biblical truth of all that we believe here at Calvary Church. And one of the core things that we do, along with our worship and music, is worship through the Word of God to allow Him to teach us. We're beginning a series in what is referred to as the Minor Prophets. These are 12 men that have written in the latter part of the Old Testament. They are difficult books to understand. In fact, the whole concept of what a prophet is is sometimes misunderstood. So here's a short video clip to help us to begin that journey with the Minor Prophets. What do these names have in common? Well, they're three of the 15 prophets that have their own books in the Bible. And if you've tried to read these books, odds are you got lost in their dense poetry and strange imagery. But these books are super important for understanding the overall biblical story. So let's talk about how to read the prophets. When I hear the word prophet, I think of a fortune teller, someone who predicts the future. That's what being a prophet means in many cultures, but not in the Bible. While the biblical prophets sometimes speak about the future, they're way more than fortune tellers. How should I think about them? Well, they were Israelites who had a radical encounter with God's presence and then were commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf. Like a representative. Right. And the thing that they cared about the most is the mutual partnership that existed between God and the Israelites. Right, the partnership. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and invited them to become a nation of justice and generosity that would represent his character to the nations. And so this partnership required all Israelites to give their trust and allegiance to their God alone. In the Bible, this partnership's called the covenant. But the leaders, the priests, the kings led Israel astray and they broke the covenant. And so this is where the prophets came in, to remind Israel of their role in the partnership. And they did this in three ways. First, they were constantly accusing Israel for violating the terms of the covenant. The charges usually include idolatry, alliances with other nations and their gods, and allowing injustice towards the poor. Ah, so like covenant lawyers. Right. And so second, the prophets called the Israelites to repent, which means simply to turn around. They spoke of God's mercy to forgive them if they would just confess and change their ways. But Israel and its leaders didn't change. Things went from bad to worse. And so that brings us to the third way the prophets emphasized the covenant. They announced the consequences for breaking it, which they called the day of the Lord. Oh yeah, the apocalypse, visions of the end of the world. Well, sort of. The prophets were mostly interested in how God would bring his justice on Israel's corruption and on the violent nations around them. And while explaining these local events, they often used cosmic imagery. Cosmic imagery? Yeah, like Jeremiah. He described the exile of the Israelites to Babylon as the undoing of creation itself. The land dissolves into chaos and disorder, no light, no animals or people. Or Isaiah described the downfall of Babylon as the disintegration of the cosmos. Stars falling from the sky, the sun going dark. For the prophets, when God acts in human history to bring justice, it's a day of the Lord. So the prophets aren't talking about the end of the world. Well, hold on. They're doing many things at once. The cosmic imagery shows how these important events of their day fit into the bigger story of God's mission to bring down every corrupt and violent nation once and for all. The prophets cared about the present and the future, and the cosmic imagery allowed them to talk about both at the same time. Got it. So no matter when you live, the day of the Lord's bad news if you're part of Babylon. But it's good news if you're waiting for God's kingdom. 
The day of the Lord pointed to the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And once again, the prophets use cosmic poetry to describe it. They see a new Jerusalem like a new Garden of Eden, with all humanity living at peace with each other and with the animals. And there's a new messianic king who restores God's kingdom in a renewed creation. Beautiful. So those are the three themes in the prophets. These prophets must have been very powerful, persuasive speakers. Well, some were, but others lived on the margins. They would often perform strange symbolic stunts in public to communicate their message. Like when Ezekiel lay in the dirt and built a model of Jerusalem being attacked by Babylon. Or when Isaiah walked around naked for three years as a symbol of the humiliation of exile. So do people pay attention to them? Not really. The stories in these books show how the prophets were a minority group mostly shunned by Israel's leaders. And their writings were a kind of resistance literature. Most people ignored them, that is, until their warnings came true in the Babylonian exile. And after that, people began to take their words seriously. Yes. The works of these earlier prophets were inherited by later unnamed prophets who studied these texts intensely. They're the ones who arrange the Hebrew scriptures as we know them, including the books of the prophets. Okay. And there's 15 books of the prophets. The big three are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then there's a collection of 12 smaller prophetic works unified on a single scroll. And in each of these books, you'll read stories about the prophets and their poems and visions, all arranged to show the cosmic meaning of Israel's history. How God would turn their tragic story of failure and exile into a story of hope and restoration for all nations. And it's that twin message of prophetic warning and of hope that the prophets cared about so much. And it's a message that we still need to hear today. So now you understand, right? There's a lot there. Uh, we refer to them as the minor prophets, not because they're not the major prophets. In other words, they're not quite good enough and they hope to get there someday. But the major prophets are just long books, and the minor prophets are short books. So we have 12 short books at the end of the Old Testament. And uh, I have in my outline here, on the back side, if you'd like to take a look at that, hopefully you receive one of these, a little chart that will help you at least place them in general proportion to their time in history and who they were all surrounding, as you see the names that are listed there. Uh, the order that we have in the Bible is not the chronological order that they served, as you can see there, but we just uh, wanted you to have that, and you might need that as a point of reference as we go through these books here. You see Hosea right there, sort of in the first third of the uh, chart, and you can see that he was very close to Amos and Jonah. They were the two that were serving that same area as well. So we're going to look at Hosea this morning, and I encourage you to use the front side of that outline to help. But let me give you a little kind of a picture here of Israel in those days. Israel in those days was known as uh, two, as a divided country. In the southern portion was an area known as Judah. In the northern part, we called them Israel. But notice the land mass that was uh, occupied, that when uh, Joshua came across the Jordan River and he began to root out the population that was there, and they took over that land, because this is the land that even greater than this going on up here that God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. So they're claiming the land that God had given to them. Way back in 1400 B.C., they came and occupied that, and then about 700 is from the era that we're looking at here. But I wanted to show one other little fact that's not in Hosea that I thought was interesting, and perhaps you would as well. When they came and occupied this land, 
Then the land after Solomon was divided here between Judah and Israel because they just couldn't get along. They had their own separate kings and all that. But one of the area of the, the land that was never occupied was this area of the Philistines. Here is Gaza. Here is Israel today. You can see the land mass is significantly different. This is the West Bank. Over here, we hear a lot about Gaza. We hear about the conflict that is between the people of Gaza as well as Israelites, the Jewish people. And this word Philistines, in the Greek rendering of it, we get the English word Palestine. So in point of fact, these were the original Palestinian people who the Philistines, like Goliath, as in David and Goliath, never got along. And it's interesting because they never really took over this occupation. They still don't have occupation of this, although there's a various political ways to describe the land and so forth. I'm not going to get lost in that. But it's interesting that in the same territory, there is still points of conflict, that God somehow in his sovereignty is allowing, I think in some ways, to help Israel come to know the God that we know. And Hosea is such a man as that. So let's get into Hosea. There are three things that I want us to learn about Hosea. And they are in the first three chapters. It's 14 chapters altogether. We're not going to cover 14 chapters. If you'd like to get greater detail on all of these Old Testament prophets, I encourage you, and here's a, here's a purely selfish, self-promoting thing for me, that this fall, starting in September, I'm going to give to you the big flowing picture of the Old Testament. If you want to put the Old Testament together, if you want to see the flow of God's work throughout the Old Testament, you join us on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock over in Sandswick Chapel in September. And I'd love to have you there. So there you go. So if you like more details about what we're doing here, first three chapters of Hosea, chapter 1 is all about this, allowing God's love to reveal and heal the brokenness of our lives. The nation of Israel constantly was breaking down in sin, violating the will of God, not keeping the Ten Commandments, not keeping any kind of worship experience that was honoring to the Lord. And Hosea is preaching to them. He's preaching his heart out. And here is what God says. In Hosea 1, 2, and 3, chapter 1, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, and this is what's so unusual about being an Old Testament prophet, that God asks them to do things that we today would think are unthinkable. For Isaiah to run around for three years naked, barefoot, there's not a lot of churches that are going to hire Isaiah, right? Well, here's Hosea. Hosea, here's what I want you to do. Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, prostitution, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry. So his wife is an illustration of the way the land of Israel is living, because he's preaching to Israel, even as he is really preaching to Judah as well. Forsaking the Lord. So Hosea, being the obedient prophet that he is, he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblem, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, beside the fact that his wife's name is Gomer, what is the more challenging thing is that, uh, and I have a hard time saying that with a straight face, um, but that Gomer is a woman of harlotry. Think about it for a moment. What if we were going to hire a new pastor here at Calvary Church 
They say, well, yeah, would you come on in? We'd like to, we're excited about you, your background, your experience. This is very exciting stuff. We think you're someone who could help teach God's word and help really disciple people in their faith. So he comes in and he doesn't bring his wife. So, you know, we would love to meet your wife. Could your wife possibly come? And we, no, she's, she's over on Harbor Avenue <laughs> in a motel room somewhere acting as a prostitute. Well, that's okay. And he says, well, see, she's going to be a life lesson for the rest of your congregation. It's the terribleness of sin. So this is what God has called us to do. We're illustrating sinfulness. We're not going to hire that guy. I'm sorry. But that's what Hosea is doing. We don't know whether Gomer was already into prostitution before they got married. There's some that believe that she was already in that practice. There's some that believe she didn't do it till afterwards. But we do know that she was a woman of harlotry. And I'll be, try to be polite about all the terminology, but that's the language that God uses here in this text. And so they have children. And just fast forwarding through chapter 1, so you can see what chapter 1 does is then begins to describe the three children that they have. First of all, Hosea and Gomer have their son Jezreel. Jezreel is a name that means to sow or to scatter. And uh, Jezreel there is talking about uh, a king of Jehu who went and massacred kings of the north and kings of the south and overdid it and shed a lot of blood. And so I'm fast forwarding to a lot of details. But the text is talking about this horrendous time in the nation's history. And he says, I want Jezreel to be an illustration that you have not kept my commandments and you have shed blood in ways that is a violation of all that I've asked you to do. You've been disobedient in a flagrant way. Gomer is an illustration of that and children that comes from this woman of harlotry that is flagrantly disobeying me, her children are an illustration that you have disobeyed me as well. They have a second son. And here is the interesting thing. These two children here, we don't know for sure that they are actually the children of Hosea. There's some that believe that it was Hosea and Gomer's children. There's some that believe it was not from Hosea, but it was because of Gomer's lifestyle. Gomer, if she were living today, would be someone you'd probably see on Mori, Mori Povich, trying to determine who's the real father. And that's what's going on here. And this is why this is just unbelievable that God has called this righteous saint named Hosea into the practice of preaching God's word. Thankfully, he doesn't do that with us today. But lo, rumaha. Rumaha is the word for compassion. Lo means no compassion. She is not love. One of the reasons we don't always experience God's love, according to Hosea, is because we are living in disobedience to God. We have failed him in some area of our lives. So he says, this second child is an illustration that you're not being loved by me now, and you don't feel my love, you don't experience my love, you're not assured of my love, and so part of the reason for that is your disobedience. So name that second child as an illustration that you as a nation Israel are not feeling my love today. In fact, they're going to be wiped out in a little bit. And then they have a third child, Lo-Ami. Ami is the word for people. You are not my people. In some sense, God is saying, I'm, I'm just disowning. I'm disassociating myself from you. you. You are not the one that I am looking to as my children. You do not represent to the world who I want my children to be. 
So he's indicating that there are some times when we go in disobedience that God seems very absent. I don't feel like I'm a child of God. I feel a little estranged from God. And God says, it may be that in the case of Israel, you are living in disobedience to me. So God is preaching through the life of Hosea. He is literally living this stuff with a wife of harlotry and children that the three of them named to symbolize the disobedience that they had before God. And and here is a little backdrop of the circumstances of Hosea's life. 2 Chronicles chapter 26 through chapter 32 is the historical time period of Hosea. If you wanted to read through that, here's just a couple of verses. Uzziah was the king in Judah, and his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. And he built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain, and hence his fame spread afar. So he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. The problem with the people of Israel is they had become proud. They were proud in their prosperity. In fact, Hosea addresses it in Hosea 13.6, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So God says, in your prosperity, Israel, you have neglected me. You're doing so well, you don't need me. And God is rebuking them for that. One of the most dangerous places to be in is a self-sufficiency prosperity where I no longer feel like I need God. And sometimes God permits things to come into our lives that help us to see I really do need him. Let me illustrate. Years ago, Joy and I have had friends. In fact, we've been friends for over almost 40 years now. And they were partners with us. I'll call them Larry and Sue. And Larry and Sue were great partners with us in ministry. And we really appreciated them. Larry would lead men in discipleship. He would become a leader in our ministry. Sue was on staff and helped support in so many ways, a gracious and loving woman. And they were prosperous people. He was at the pinnacle of success in his career. Physically, they were beautiful people. They had three beautiful children. They were outstanding leaders in our church. And it's interesting that in that prosperity, as we looked at them and they served together with us, we were so appreciative of who they are and what they were doing and how they were sacrificing on our behalf. But it was interesting that after about a nine-year period of time, as we were getting ready to relocate, it came to my attention that Larry had been committing adultery and he had been involved with at least 10 women during that same period of time. And so as I thought about Jose and I thought about that your heart becomes proud and you forget about God and God forgets about you. Larry reminded me that you can be outwardly very prosperous, even doing the right things outwardly, but there's a brokenness on the inside, a brokenness that God wants to reveal, a brokenness that God wants to heal. And the nation of Israel and Judah were prosperous on the outside. They occupied great masses of, of land, and, and, the, and the, the fruit of the land was prosperous. Their military was highly strong. But God says, I, I want to reveal that on the, in the inside of your heart, you are broken. So chapter 1 of Hosea is, allow the love of God to reveal that brokenness, because he wants us to return. And 
I'd love for you to read the whole chapter, but in verse 10, I was struck by this verse. Yet the number of the sons of Israel, this is, this is God's desire for all of us. This is why God reveals the brokenness of our hearts. He says, the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. I still want you to be popular. I still want you to be prosperous. I still want you to extend beyond the world, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, lo, ami, of the third child, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So chapter 1 of Hosea reveals to us that God loves us and that our external prosperity can deceive us. In fact, we can deceive people that trust in us because in the inside of my heart I am broken and I know I'm broken, but I want to keep the facade of prosperity. Sometimes it looks like spiritual prosperity, but inside it's very much a brokenness. And God says, I want that to come to the light of day because I still have plans to replant you. And that's what he says literally later. I still have plans to reveal you as the sons of the living God. Then we move to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, God says, I, I want to love you so much that I'm going to discipline you, Israel. I'm going to discipline you to entice you to return to me. And in chapter 2, we break it down in this way. And let me read a couple of verses out of the Hosea. In fact, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to bring it. In fact, we have Bibles that are in the chair rack in front of you like this one. And it's page 640. And I know it's 640 because I looked in the table of contents. And I encourage you to do the same thing as well. Or if you have your phone, your iPad, your computer. But I'm going to read a couple of verses out of Hosea in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, it talks about this discipline of God. In chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge her up way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers. This is like Gomer. Gomer will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. And then she will, then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. So what God is saying is to Gomer, Gomer, I'm going to put a hedge around you. I'm going to put a barrier around you. I, I want to stop you from your behavior. I'm going to make life hard for you. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about our friends Larry and Sue, and I remember when Larry, and I had no idea about this serial adultery going on with him. I remember Larry came to me and says, we have a, a major trauma in our family. I said, oh, really? And he described what it was. And it was traumatic so that the entire church had to be involved. And it was painful. I remember Larry saying to me at that time, he says, Dave, this thing I'm going through, why, this is literally what he said, why does it have to hurt so bad? And at that time I had no idea that it was some form of this. Behold, I will hedge her up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Because God says, I love you so much. I don't want you to continue down that road. So what God does to his children that he loves, who are broken on the inside, prosperous on the outside, is he begins this form of discipline. 
And it says, she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. And then she'll say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. I'll go back to Hosea, because he treated me so much better than these men that I'm constantly with. And it reminds me, if I can quote myself again, you never find in sin what you enter sin to find. And that's what Gomer discovered. So that she began to turn her way. So that God says, I want to entice you. I want to bring you back. I will discipline you, but I will entice you to return to me. And then we come to this wonderful verse, Hosea 2.14. So I put it on the screen. I love this verse. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. This is Hosea to Gomer. This is God to Israel. This is Jesus Christ to you and me. He says, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. And the word allure means to have tender, seductive speech. I put Judges 16.5 on there because that's what Delilah did to Samson to find out the secret of his strength. Is one prostitute to Samson, is one prostitute to Hosea. And God says, I will give to you seductive speech. This is God speaking that I want to win you back. And this word, I, I actually wanted to show you the literal. Speak kindly to her, I underline, is literally to speak to her heart. I want to speak to her heart. Because what she is doing is not rational. It's not logical. What she's doing is self-destructive. She's realizing that I was better with Hosea than with all these other men. So it's not rational. When we sin and violate God's will, when, when we are broken on the inside, prosperous on the outside, we disguise it, we deceive others with it, that's not rational because we are failing on the inside. So what God says, I want to speak to your heart. I want you to hear my words of seduction to your heart to win you back. A couple of weeks ago, I got a letter I want to read to you an amazing thing there's i'm involved with the santa Ana police department as you may know and i'm part of the peer counseling group critical incident review there's a psychologist that sends us regularly information that helps us to understand critical incident and peer review and uh, support officers who've gone through traumatic things that sort of stuff and two weeks ago the psychologist psychologist sent a story about a woman a cop's wife Whose, cop, whose, whose husband was killed six years ago by a thug. Shot three times, the third bullet killed him. And at that time, six years ago, they had two children under the age of three. And this woman, who is anonymous, doesn't want her name used, decided, I can't live this way. After six years as a widow, I can't do this anymore. And so she planned one weekend to take her life. And so she sent the children to her parents' house. That Friday night, she prepared a meal that was her husband's favorite meal. She had a bottle of wine that she drank that they were saving for their 20th wedding anniversary. And then she watched a video of their wedding. And then she went to their bedroom to the safe where she knew her husband kept his extra gun. She opened the safe. There was the gun. On top of the gun was a letter. On the envelope was her name. She had no idea that that was there. 
She pulled out that envelope, opened up that letter, wondering what in the world is this? Here is in part what her husband wrote to her. If you're reading this letter, it's because something went horribly wrong. You've never gone in this safe before. I know how you feel about guns. If you had just gone into the safe to get a gun to protect yourself I, and, it, and I wasn't home, I know something bad had happened and you'd be dealing with the problem, not this letter. But no, my love, you're reading this letter because I'm gone. And I am so, so sorry. I'm sorry that you have to read these words. I'm sorry for the pain you and our children are experiencing. I'm sorry that I will not be there for our holidays, our anniversary, the birthdays, the graduations. My heart aches as I write you this letter. I pray you will never read it, but you are reading it. And that means that as, for as hard as I tried to protect our family, I'm failed. I am so sorry. Whatever happened to me, do not let it harden your heart or your hearts. Love, when you can, please find a way to help other wives. When the time is right, when the kids are okay, this is important to me. It's important to me because I know it will help you heal because I know your heart and I know your love. Please explain to our children that I never wanted to leave them. Tell them how proud of them I am. Tell them how much I love them. Tell them that when they look up to the stars on that cold and clear night, they can see me winking at them. Please tell them that the greatest thing to ever happen to a salty old guy like me was that I had you and we had them. And that made my life perfect. I will never stop loving you. We will be together again one day. Be strong now. You have to work to do it. You have lives to save. I can't be the protector I was anymore, but you and the kids can do it for me. You are my everything. You are my heart. You are my love. Now fight for others because that is what this family does. Love eternal, your husband. Reading that letter stopped her. It literally saved her life and the lives of her children. When I read that letter, I was studying this passage, and I, I couldn't help but think that isn't that what God, in his word, in the scriptures, tries to do for us? To literally save us with words of love, where the scriptures of God speak to our heart. They bring us to the scriptures that we understand the love that God has for us, like Romans, where it says, but all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are words of love that speak kindly to our heart, to woo us back. This whole idea, these words of love to allure us. That first Hebrew, Hosea 2.14 was the first of the beginning of the restoring of Hosea's marriage with Gomer. Because you read through there, there is, there is the alluring words of love. You know, when you're dating your wife, you tend to have more alluring, kind words to the heart, right? Do you remember that? I know when I was first dating Joy, I think I referenced this a long, long time ago, we, 
went on a fancy restaurant to Madonna Inn up here in the co- up the coast. And, um, you know, you, you want to allure, you want to have enticing words to show, you know, I think highly of you. And so we went to this fancy restaurant with a bunch of Westmont kids. And, uh, and everybody else had a corsage on or a corsage here. And my friend and I, we, we bought her a potted plant. And she walked in with a potted plant and put it on the table in front of us. A little dirt spilling over on the nice tablecloth, you know. And so we thought, you know, this is, this is practical. Those lousy corsages, they're going to be dead in another day. You've got something to remember me for the rest of your life. See, that's, that's words that speak to the heart, right? And, and I'm glad that I did that early on with Joy because after 44 years of marriage, she knew what she was getting into. And yes, I am cheap, but I'm very practical. But this is God when he speaks to us words of love. He knows how to do it correctly, not like me. He knows how to speak words of love. And because what God wants is to betroth them. He, he wants to remarry them. He wants to restore the marriage with Israel. You're not my children. You're not my lover anymore. You're scattered. Zezreel, lo ami. You, you are not part of me. But I want to bring you back. I want to betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. I want to remarry you. I love you that much. Even in your brokenness, when you come back to me, I will open my arms and receive you. This is our God. Remember Larry and Sue. Let me bring you back to Larry and Sue. We lost track of Larry and Sue, but they divorced. They were divorced for two years. Sue couldn't stay with a man who had done what he had done. And Sue came up and stayed with us for a little bit one time. I remember sitting in our living room with Sue and reminiscing and hearing her story and the heartache of all that she's been through and the betrayal. And then she said, you know, it's crazy. For all that Larry has done, is what she said literally, I still love the old lump. And I think, I'm not sure I could do that. I'm not sure I could marry or love any lump, (laughs) good or bad. But she did. And her love continued for Larry. Larry got counseling because Larry had issues that were unseen by all of us. But there was a deep brokenness in his heart. And through therapy, God healed his heart. And then I got a call from Larry and Sue. Hey, Dave, we're getting remarried. Would you come down and officiate at our wedding? I said, I would love to do that. So we came down here to Diamond Bar and had a celebration where God had brought the brokenness of their hearts into a healing and restoration and forgiveness and grace and love. And to this day, they continue to serve Jesus Christ in their own church. That's what God loves to do. That's what God wanted to do with Israel. That's what God wants to do with us. And how does he make that happen? Hosea chapter 3 is the way that he makes it happen because he wants us to trust in God's love. We need to trust that God's love is going to redeem us. 
we can enjoy his love and his presence again. So it's Hosea 3. It says, Then the Lord said, Go again. Hosea, I know you're estranged from Gomer as I was estranged from Israel, but I want you to go find her. Where is she? Go find her. Go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, Hosea, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel. So Hosea gets up. He takes with him 15 shekels of, of coin, but because he doesn't have enough cash, he brings a bunch of barley with him as well, as it says in there in the verse. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and barley, which equals 30 shekels of silver. And then I said to her, you shall stay, you shall dwell, you shall live with me, be present with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. And so Hosea takes 30 shekels of silver, which is the price of a slave, and he goes to this auction, and there is his wife who is slaved to another man or to a a religious prostitution ring or to a religious temple where she is involved in this horrendous behavior. And he goes and he says, I want to buy that woman, Gomer. I want to redeem her from her sinful ways. I will pay the price that is worthy of her redemption, and I will bring her back to be my wife. And that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus paid the price on that cross to set us free from our sins, to buy us back from him. He loves us that much. And as I think about the application on this, it occurs to me that there are some of us who are like Hosea. We're trying to rekindle a love for someone who has done something terrible, hurt us, betrayed us, deprived us of certain things, cheated on us, whatever the thing may be. But that God says, like Hosea, I invite you to do what is necessary to restore that love. And then some of us are like Gomer. We're broken on the inside, but we don't want to admit it. But we know we are. We're like Larry, where it looks like we've got it all together, but in the inside, I don't have it all together. I'm hurting and God is putting barriers to stop me from pursuing things that are wrong. And I'm frustrated. And God says, maybe it's time for you to come back. Return to a God who has open arms of love. As we heard the song sung earlier, that God wants to reclaim us, to restore us, to heal us, to make us right with him. Let his kind words of love, his alluring words of love, speak to your heart to draw you back, to entice you. Even, almost there's a seductiveness to the nature of God to win us back as his bride. That's why 2 Corinthians 11 says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He said, I want you to come back to Jesus. The church, we are the bride of Christ. Come back to Jesus. And sometimes we get deceived. But I'm afraid that as a servant deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And maybe it's time for some of us who find ourselves in the place of Gomer to say, yes, Lord, I need to come back. And Jesus says, I've paid not 30 shekels of silver. I've paid with my life. As Peter says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things, like 30 
shekels of silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He says, Dave, Calvary, I love you that much that like Hosea spotting his wife over there in her fallen condition, I will pay to redeem you to myself. And if you've never made that faith commitment to Christ, let his redemption buy you out of your sin and into his fellowship. Let him heal your heart. Let him restore what is broken. And if you're like Hosea, would you extend that love to someone else that needs it? As Hosea models it for you and me, let's extend our love to those that are broken and may not even know it so that we can be that vehicle that God can use to restore them to himself as well. Let me pray for us. We're going to receive the communion. And communion is a way to represent that the blood of Christ has paid the price for my sin. And I am in fellowship with him. He has healed my broken, sinful heart. So we take the bread and the cup as it symbolizes the the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us. Help us, Father, as we turn to you now through this time of communion, that, Father, we would remember that you did pay a very high price. Hosea got away with 30 shekels of silver to win back his bride. But, Father, you gave your son, you gave his life, to buy us back, to redeem us out of our sin so that we could have your healing, your forgiveness, your grace, and be in fellowship with you forever. Father, help us on the journey that as these elements are passed, the bread and the cup, that for each of us they would represent that, yes, I have received the payment. Jesus has died for me. I've asked for his forgiveness, and I am now walking with Christ. Father, help us each to be in that place as we look to you for this now. In Jesus' name, amen.